Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In Series 3, we sit down with business leaders and futurists from across the globe to discuss what emerging tech means to them, how technology impacts workplace culture, and their advice to businesses on how to stay one step ahead of the competition. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats to J.L. Hancock. Jim is the former head of innovation for the U.S. Navy SEALs. Jim enlisted in the U.S. Navy and spent 20 years as a cryptologist. During his time in the military, Jim toiled away the dark corners of the government intelligence communities, learned two Asian languages, and eventually conducted over 100 combat operations with special operation forces in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Philippines. During the last six years of his career, he worked as the senior enlisted advisor over future concepts and innovation for the US Navy Special Operations community, where he became a well-known subject matter expert in unmanned systems, 5G, and artificial intelligence. Jim is now an author, recently releasing his book, The Hawk Enigma, which is a fictional techno-thriller. Fans of Tom Clancy and Michael Critchen's novels will love his fast-paced style with lots of tech and adventure. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for uh, joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, all good with you and uh, in sunny California, I believe. Yeah, yeah, San Diego. Not so sunny here at the moment, but uh, it's very <laughs> dark here. And uh, But yeah, it's uh, the back end of our day, but uh, thanks for taking the time out to join us. And I suppose uh, for, for, our, for our listeners, I'll just talk through what we're trying to cover today. We've got a lean into, I suppose, emerging technologies, innovation, the view on how emerging technology is changing in the battlefield and how technologies such as AI and 5G are delivering a strategic advantage, um, I suppose, to the military and security forces, I suppose, globally. A little bit of uh, background, um, you know, we as a business do quite a lot of different technologies for both enterprise, governments, and some of that does end up in the hands of the Ministry of Defence here in the UK. Interestingly, most of the time we'll never know where it's appearing, what how it's appearing, but there are some amazing technologies out there that we're seeing coming to fruition um, and some amazing projects. So today we're going to cover off um, a number of different areas. Jim's going to talk us through um, some of the questions that I've got lined up for him today. But my first question, and particularly for us non-military guys out there, is can you explain for the audience what a Navy cryptologist does, please? Sure. So a cryptologist specializes in the exploitation and manipulation of communications. So if you have a device or something that can communicate in some way, think of a cryptologist as the person that is in between those two communications. And that can involve anything from foreign language translation to understanding how the signal works, encoding and decoding information, as well as computer networks. So it's a lot, there's several different flavors of cryptologists inside the military, but that in general is what a cryptologist does. Anything involving cryptanalysis, cryptography. So that would be, is that based, is that a land-based or are you on ships or or is that a mix? Yes. So all of the above. So you use, cryptologists are, are unique in the fact that this is actually why I joined the Navy in this job is because I had the opportunity to either be in subsurface on a sub, on a ship flying in an aircraft or fighting on the ground. You could do any one of them in that particular wow. field. And it's only branch of service that allowed you to do all those things. And I suppose that role is kind of quite key in terms of that intelligence and and, and driving the decisions that are made on the ground effectively or, or ship or boat as such. Yeah, no, it's a critical, it's a critical need, of course, because think of something that doesn't use a radio wave. 
right? Everything uses radio waves. And so you have to understand that environment in a way that gives you uh, an advantage in the battlefield, right? Wow. Okay. And I, I, I guess from from obviously uh, from I suppose the, the the little bits of information you pick up in the media and and and, uh, and speaking to people that I suppose intelligence is probably the biggest part of probably modern day warfare these days, isn't it? And uh, it, yeah. it's information disinformation as well, for, from from my understanding, which I, I suppose technology is going to play a huge part in. Yeah. No. So yeah, the, everything about the battlefield is about who can gather the most information and, and able to understand the information that they've gathered. Okay. And so anything that allows you to um, enhance that ability is critical. So obviously just in, in your early days, I suppose you, you, um, you learn a couple of uh, different uh, languages uh, with that to sort of help with your career and, uh, or, or was that just a personal interest? So no, I originally joined, so I, I learned, I knew Japanese before I, Joined the military, and then when I got in the military, I joined specifically as a linguist, not understanding that linguists in the Navy are also cryptologists. They have to have they have to wear both hats, um, and so I ended up learning Korean and spent the beginning part of my career as a Korean analyst, um, working in that mission area until I swapped over to the special operations community and spent the rest all the bulk of my career after that in that area. Wow! But um. So linguists, because of the fact that, so linguists, they specialize in the foreign language translation, but they still have to understand how the communications take place, the infrastructure associated with it, where those communications come from. And then from there, I, get, I became significantly more interested in the cryptology side than I was in the foreign language aspect. So the foreign languages became something that I always had in my back pocket, but it wasn't my primary skill set from then on. Okay. So, so what got you into, I suppose, technology as a whole? Uh, I've always just been kind of a nerd, I guess, is one way of putting it. I've always kind of like love chasing down how things work and why they work that way. But uh, I think um, I also really enjoyed the military. And when I got in and I realized that I could get access to stuff that was cutting edge, it um, really excited my imagination and creativity. And it, But the best part was it was an avenue in which I could pursue those and get paid for it at the same time. And that's not a liberty a lot of people have. And that's my friend always joked with me. He's like, dude, everything you do is about finding access to something and have somebody pay you to do something you were going to do anyway. I'm like, well, yeah, that's basically what my time in the military was, is doing something I was going to do no matter what, just now I'm getting a paycheck for it. Right? Yeah, it does help if you can get paid for it as well and, and enjoy it, of course, as well. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, you you were kind of head of innovation for the US Navy SEALs mm-hmm. um, which and, and Special Forces community, which is is pretty impressive and, and, and very cool from from where I'm sitting. How engaged is the military with new technologies and disruptive vendors and, and, and I suppose that whole emerging tech piece? Yeah, so there is not a lack of appetite in any way on the military side for new technologies. They're constantly seeking out unique ways in which the commercial industry is solving problems. The okay. problem is never the appetite. It's always the process by which the government and the military acquire those technologies. Um, there are, it's it's a very elaborate process that it's called JSIS, the Joint Capabilities Integration Development System, especially on the on the American side, and that system uh, dictates how, it, from a legal standpoint, all of that takes place because you're using congressionally appropriated money to go after these things and they have to be validated and there's timelines put in place. You can't just go out and buy something you like. 
Um, and that is a drawback because it, it also, you have to look at how it is ingested into the ecosystem. And that is a very complicated aspect. You can't just say, I like this software. I'm going to put it on my computer. There's all those IT issues in addition to the fact that how does it impact things that you've already done? Is it a duplicative capability? Do we already have something that does it similarly? Can we just enhance what we already have? And that complicates things. And it, it, it also, it complicates the, uh, the way that the, the warfighter understands what they have access to. And so it's like to answer your main question. No, yes, there is absolutely a huge appetite for it. It's just that other end that makes it hard. Yeah, that, that process sometimes even in an enterprise uh, organization can be quite challenging bringing new technologies in. And I guess when it's in the, I suppose, a, a secure environment, that, that can be quite challenging. And uh, I, I suppose there's probably quite a bit of frustration from the technology providers, the vendors who are creating that technology and want to bring that space uh, of the process that they have to go through, which could be quite a low value transaction effectively, but potentially could deliver huge value to the, the military. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's a complicated process for sure. So to be more specific, that, that JSIDS process was put in place during the Cold War by the Secretary of Defense McNamara. And he did so for a couple of reasons. One, everyone was very concerned with the ethical application of congressionally appropriated funding, of course, because they don't want to mismanage taxpayer money. But beyond that, internal to the system was uh, was a governor put in place so that we didn't over-accelerate the technological development. And the reason why they did that is because they didn't want to accelerate the Cold War. And so there literally is a, a speed bump built into acquisition to slow it down so that we don't move too quickly. Well, that surprises me because you're slowing down innovation. And, and is there not a worry that the competitors, the bad guys or, or whoever – don't have that slowdown process are potentially getting the upper hand? Of course, it's a problem. I mean, we used to joke in my office that if we want to win the war, we should get the enemy to adopt our acquisitions process. Um, so, <laughs> so like, it, and that's not because I'm trying to knock on any of that. I mean, it's just, it's just the reality of the situation. What it required you to do, though, was find unique ways to work around it. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that I learned in my job was that there's no such thing as when you hear no, it's one of two no's. It's either an objection or a rejection. And the vast majority of those are objections. You just have to figure out a way to get to yes. And once you do, most of the time you can get what you want done. And and that was really where most of our success came from is, is understanding the acquisitions process, seeing where those those vehicles were in place where you could move more effectively and then do it. The problem really is that uh, a lot of people don't understand it well enough, so they're not able to maneuver it effectively. And then they just default to these larger policies that say, nope, you have to wait for these timelines or you have to go with this speed. And, so if, you're, um, if you were the mischievous child at school and uh, would always find a way to get something done, it's probably a, a good career move to go into something like that. For sure. No, it, 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 then what's funny is that people would come back and say, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know if you understand the acquisition process. It's like, actually, I understand it better than you do. <laughs> that's why I'm able to get some things done. Yeah. And, and that's really kind of where I made my name for myself was somebody that understood it well enough to be able to manipulate it to get things done. Because at the end of the day, we don't work because of the acquisitions process. We work for the warfighter. We work for the end state to do what we need to do, right? And um, all these other things are not in place to be like we use this term a lot but they're not there to be a self-licking ice cream cone and to serve themselves right uh they're there to 
support a particular end state. Fascinating. Yeah, no, interesting. I suppose some of the technologies that, you know, I speak about a great deal and, and are seeing coming into, I suppose, the commercial and, and the enterprise sector is, you know, typically AI and machine learning, um, you know, and I, I get how they can improve the speed and quality of intelligence gathering. And as you mentioned, you'd, you'd listen to one of our other podcasts um, and, and we were talking about um, a technology there, uh, natural language recognition, which it, which is kind of quite cool. But is there a r- risk that some of the data or, or that we could become too reliant on following data than human instinct? And obviously you've seen, um, you know, you've been in that uh, military space where you're on the ground, decisions need to be made. We can't be sat there waiting to run some data before we engage or do something that can save lives. Or do you think that the AI machine learning could improve that? So if you're talking about data as a whole, there is way too much data for the end user to process. Okay. And and so I'll, I'll caveat that. So with that, I'll say two things. One, anytime you're integrating artificial intelligence at the initial baseline. It's because you're trying to either automate a process to make it easier for yourself, or you're trying to aggregate information in a way that you weren't considering before to cue you into identifying um, either outliers or anomalous behavior that is is consistent with something that you're actually looking for. And so because of the fact that there's so much data we're trying to process it, AI at the end of the day, when it comes to autonomous, whether you're talking about an autonomous robotic system or you're talking about an analyst sitting in a computer processing a whole bunch of tabular data, they want to do two things. They want to mitigate risk and they want to decrease the cognitive load of the end user. And right now, the data problem is that you'll have certain people in certain situations, let's say an operator, getting consumed with information and they are they're, they're, and I say that you think that they'd be consuming information, but it's because they're enveloped by there's so much information being dumped on them. They need a way to process and curate it in a way that makes sense in the battlefield. And so you're actually, when you have too much data, uh, it, that impacts human instinct. But then the, conversely, when you're not able to process that data effectively, your human instinct doesn't do you any good because you don't even know what you're looking for. Mm. And so there's two ends of that spectrum. And AI for me was always trying to find ways of fixing those pain points simplifying processes, decreasing that cognitive load so the end user can make better decisions. The historical model for solving that problem was you just add more people, hire, enlist more individuals, bring the more people in the military, have more people squinting and staring at pictures to identify that problem. Whereas in reality, a simple computer vision tool with the right statistical probability assessment and the right machine learning algorithm can help you identify to cue you into what to look at. It's not going to supplement that human being entirely, not yet at least. But initially, it, it's we've got to build up that trust, and that goes into an entirely separate conversation. Well, actually, speaking of uh, of trust, and uh, you know, I'm looking at I, I did a little bit of research as, as I always do before I, um, I do, and what you know, some of the numbers and stats that fascinate me, and the value of the AI market for military applications was was valued at something like 6.2 billion in 2020, and that's forecasted to grow to something like 11.6 billion dollars in 2025, which is huge growth over that period of time. Machine learning is looking to lead the sector spend into 2025, and I can see huge advantages in intelligence, simulations, uh, battlefield healthcare, 
but there is still a trust issue when it comes to AI, not obviously in just the military, but in, in, in enterprise. And um, what can we do to check that decision-making process? And obviously you can't, I suppose when you're in the on the ground as such and, and lives depend on on that coming through, you haven't got time to sanitize it. So so how do we trust that data? Yeah. So I think sometimes when people think of the decision making process, they think of it as, um, especially when it comes to AI, is they immediately default to the AI is making the decisions. And that isn't what happens at all. There isn't a system out there that is even re remotely reliable enough to do something like that. What you see in, in, in any emerging technology is there is a cultural and a geographical divide between the new technology and the end user. If you don't physically present what you're trying, what you are capable of doing to somebody, um, even if you send them videos and you send them emails, they don't get it. You have to put it in front of them. And that takes time. And then as time goes by and you get buy-in, it starts changing the culture because the appetite changes of how they want to accept that. Now, within a community like the one where I worked, reputation is everything. And that's not just for the individual. That is for every piece of technology you ever have. Once you present it to a warfighter, if it doesn't operate based upon everything that you said it can do, it will get trash talked about for the history of its existence, for the rest of its existence. That's, that's just how it goes. Reputation is everything. You're very careful about how you present something to the end user. And so a lot of machine learning sometimes that actually might be viable uh, ends up finding itself in a position where it gets canned because in the end user won't even touch it because it's it, it didn't perform as expected in its initial application. And so what you're seeing, that cultural divide actually hinders a lot of advancement, even if something is really good that comes out that can offer good capabilities. The other problem is kind of going back to that cognitive load issue is when you add another tool to somebody, their their response is, oh, I already know how to use these other ones. Why do I want to apply this out, this new one that you have? How is it any better? And so once again, a cultural divide exists. It's almost like a separate valley of death. Um, if you talk to a private company or companies about products, the, there's three valleys of death that really hold back a product. And the one is theory to white, to white paper to prototype. And then the second is prototype to production. And the third is production to sales. That production to sales standpoint can be held up by a lot of things, and a lot of them tend to be cultural. And so in the long run, I mean, that's a separate conversation. Years from now, once reliable systems become integrated into the, into the, into the ecosystem, um, then it will begin to impact the decision-making process. But in general, most of the applications are so unique and bespoke that they're there predominantly just to automate pain points rather than supplement or replace any decision-making process that's being done by the human. I, I completely agree with you on that cultural issue because uh, when we've had projects go, I suppose, go live in the enterprise space and even internally within our own business, and sometimes that sort of cultural pull in one direction, oh, it's, it's just something a little bit different or it's kind of you, you're trying to get the same ounce, an, answers out of, of something different and they want the same output, but you've not put that solution in there to get the same output that you've always gone. You're actually looking to to take it another peg up, and sometimes, yeah, that that I, I definitely agree that is a cultural challenge in most technologies. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I suppose, and in, in, again, you know, 
technologies used in, in military and, and, and I suppose sometimes uh, even in space applications flow through to corporate and then domestic use cases. We, we've seen, um, I think, from the early space missions, Teflon was a great example, um, coating to, to make things a lot smoother. What technology would you bet on to appear in the corporate space that you've seen potentially in the military environment? So that's a tough one because the examples you gave were a lot of them were material science-based solutions. And historically, prior to about the 21st century, the bulk of the development of the government side was focusing on material sciences. And those applications nowadays have become more and more unique just to the military. So if you think about things like stealth technology or something comparable a nuclear weapon-based capability, those aren't things that the commercial sector uses very much. And surprisingly, it's the opposite right now. It's less about technologies that the government is using, or sorry, that the military is using that are going to get pushed out to industry. It's more, how are we able to take commercial things and bring them back into the, in the, in the military ecosystem? And that was surprising me when I got into my job because I was like, there's got to be some really cool stuff out there. And I, I went around, I found some really interesting orphan projects that were hiding within certain national laboratories. But you look at it and you're like, that has no viable commercial product capability right now. So I want to say that there's some really cool things that I, I've seen go one direction, but they are still commercial technologies. My favorite thing that has come out, though, to answer that specific question, it's not being employed in the military yet, but because the technology is not advanced enough, but um, is made by a company called Mojo Vision, and they make um, augmented reality contact lenses. And that has to be probably some of the coolest stuff I've seen so far, just because they're breaking world records when it comes to the size of things that they're making, and, and it works, which is the crazy part. Yeah, and uh, there's, I suppose, um, we've spoken to a number of people and some of the technologies around AR, VR, XR, and I suppose, again, coming into military, that there's a great use case there for, for that training and that simulation experience, healthcare as well. But yeah, it, the issue is at the moment that not a lot of people uh, like the weight of the headset or it makes them feel ill. But yeah, if you can get it into, say, a contact lens, that, that's that's incredible. Yeah, no, I, I did a lot of work with augmented reality systems and uh, that was the one I got excited about. All the other ones, yeah. I was like, yep, that's not going anywhere. But um, <laughs> yeah, no. when it comes to augmented reality, virtual reality, I think that there's definitely a place for certain things, but augmented reality is a tough one because the warfighter's picky. Yeah, absolutely. And I see, especially particularly in some of those special ops situations where you want to, I suppose, map out a building that you're going into. And if you can get some muscle memory into your reactions going into there, and if you've got the time to plan ahead enough and to replicate that into a a virtual environment and to train in that so that you know where that door is on the left-hand side because you've seen it, that, I, I, I guess, would really, really help. Yeah, I, I, that's that's one, that's one example. I think a good example of that from a commercial standpoint is how um, National Football League in American football, uh, they train their quarterbacks is they have actual uh, virtual, reality, virtual reality headsets that they give them that have all of their plays built into it. And they can just sit on their couches and just run plays. And it doesn't do anything to their body. So now they can they can get the, the, the mental memory tied in uh, in a way that doesn't wear them down physically. So they're able to perform significantly better in their off time. 
Wow, I've not heard that one before. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm just wondering if that'll uh, that'll come to uh, our football or, or soccer, as you guys call it. So yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll have to find out if I can find out if anyone knows that that's actually happening. Yeah, that's a tough one because Premier League football and things like that is a significantly different animal. You don't have a reset every single time between plays. Yeah. So, yeah. but I'm sure there's a way. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And and I suppose um you know coming into some of those um projects and and, and stuff, I was reading an article on the UK Ministry of Defence website recently, and they shared a statement about its use of AI and emerging tech. Um, and the UK government set out uh, uh, they want to be a world leader in the space. And, and uh, an example that they shared was this uh, Project Spotter. And it, I think it's very similar to the project that you mentioned earlier on um, when, when we were talking, which used machine learning to look at satellite images and identify specific items of interest. And the benefit being that the systems could monitor the slightest changes, obviously 24-7 in pretty much real time. Again, I suppose there aren't many projects that I know that you'll probably be able to talk about because of the, the security status. But are there any sort of pro- interesting projects that you've been involved with that are, have been in the public domain that you can share with us that are similar? Uh, I think a really good example of one that was very well known was maybe Project Maven. And that was uh, an effort that we had involved. There was Google was involved and a lot of different groups. It ended, eventually just kind of, um, it sort of fizzled out to an extent, but it had an ambitious intent. And the intent was really focused along the same lines of using using imagery to train uh, machine learning and, and based systems for computer vision. And that was one that uh, was pretty well known. It, the, the, the problem with that they had on the military side was that um, you have all these images, but uh, the, it's hard to create a database. You have, a, you have all this, this huge database of imagery um, and you want to simplify detection of things that you're looking at, but uh, using commercial resources that you can't do it because every time the camera angle that is available is at, it's at the wrong angle, if you know what I mean. So if you're looking at something from the sky, is very different than if you're looking at it from the ground. Mm-hmm. And you're most likely not going to have the cameras on the ground. So they had to create a project to try and be like, how do we solve this problem? And it's very similar to what that one you were just talking about. It's just the distance was different. And the medium was different because Spotter, I mean, I, I don't know anything about that project, I guess, <laughs> but I know it's very projects that are very similar. Um, still images like that uh, offer a very different problem than video. Yeah, and I, I suppose I could imagine, uh, you know, particularly in the current climate where you've got Mr. Putin sort of, uh, you know, moving his forces around. And if there's a slight move or, or somebody's moved uh, a few tanks around and they repositioned them, and if you can get the heads up 24-7 and, and keep that track, and you can get some alerts set up. That, I suppose, saves human eyes trawling through images, and and it, it can just give you that little bit of an edge, I suppose. Totally. But from a so civilian side, that there are perfect parallel analogs that you can that I can think of for disaster response, um, and that's a lot of times. So uh, I think another thing that's un- is interesting is instead of thinking of from the standpoint of like from space, the drones that you can buy, like that pretty much most any drone that you can buy nowadays has an ability to do what's called uh you can do lawnmower tracks over a particular location and take images and then aggregate that into what's called an object file or a tile and that allows you to create photogrammetry which is a three-dimensional image of your of, of, of what you're doing and so what's happened recently with certain technologies is that process used to take a long time and now it's getting cut down to minutes if not seconds to where you can reconstruct a three-dimensional image of whatever it is you're looking at 
but you can have one before an event and after and literally have it not just in two dimensions, but three dimensions. And um, a lot of my friends at different universities have been deployed places like I think one of them uh, a while back went out to Italy after an earthquake and was using it for disaster response there to identify structural stability so that rescue workers could get in to save people. Um, those are perfect examples of that exact same technology being used for commercial uses. Yeah, and that's great. If uh, you know, I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people, and we, we talk a lot about tech for good. And I think if you can use technology to speed up recovery, that's fantastic use of technology. And particularly, um, you know, drones are, you know, I wouldn't say that they're cheap, but they they are relatively coming down in price all the time. So you can get a decent drone that's got 4K camera for for you know a thousand dollars now. So yeah, it is cheap technology, effectively. Yeah, compared to what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, used to be absolutely. a U two, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of, um, I know some other areas that that you've been working in uh, is uh, is around five G as well, and that's one of your sort of uh, expertise areas. And I know, you know, I can understand that five G offers the ability to scale military bases quickly and easily, as well as connecting to IoT devices. And I suppose, what are the benefits of 5G in those kind of environments compared to, I suppose, traditional Wi-Fi and cable networks? Yeah. Um, so one thing about 5G that I think that first I, I want to kind of point out is 5G, at in its essence, is just 4G on a different band. Yeah. It's just you've got a wider band that allows you to put in more data. You're going from 20 megs to 100 megs, and that 100 megs allows you to just jam a whole bunch more information on it. But from an IoT network standpoint, a Wi-Fi network standpoint, you're able to control who has access to it much more effectively. You're able to adapt to environments that you're in to um, optimize and, de and deconflict against other types of noise. So if other types of systems are in the environment, you can manipulate parameters so that you don't um, commit what's called a fratricide. So you're not killing the other types of radio communications that are in the area by putting too much noise on the a certain part of the spectrum. Wi-Fi in particular is is so prolific that you're you're susceptible to noise and it decreases your range dramatically. Um, whereas with 5G, you're able to use parts of the spectrum that normally aren't being used for other reasons. You can um, get better range, you can share larger amounts of data, um, and you that in and of itself is probably one of the biggest benefits. Another part about it when it comes to IoT specifically, is built within the 5G protocol, starting at, I think the um, the third generation partnership project is an IEEE organization that manages the 5G protocol and all cellular protocols. And starting with like release 15, they're on 18 now, they started integrating uh, protocol requirements for how to manage unmanned systems as well as IoT devices inside of 5G to optimize performance. And they did that so that the things like drone deliveries could take place inside of uh, cellular infrastructure more effectively by decreasing latency. Their goal on that, I think the minimum standard is a 50 millisecond latency delay, which is minimal. It's actually as, as low as a first-person video um, drone racing league drone. And they're trying to aim for that on 5G. And now if you have that kind of speed and the lack of latency on a network for a forward operating base, you now have the same benefits that you would have in, in a forward, any infrastructure back home. Yeah, and I actually, uh, that, that leads me into, uh, I actually read an article which I found fascinating, absolutely couldn't believe it, about an assassination, I think it was in the last 12 or 18 months, on an Iranian nuclear scientist. Um, and the 
uh, I suppose the the assassins, uh, and it was alleged that it had come from from Europe somewhere. That they'd utilised a fully autonomous weapon, controlled and targeted from another country. So apparently they they built this um, this weapon, put it in a car, they brought it into Iran piece by piece, and they used five G to. You to, for the targeting, and it was controlled from a completely different country. And apparently, the assassins used AI to calculate the latency of the 5G to guide the targeting. And they reckon that the latency on that 5G connection was something like 1.6 milliseconds. And I then looked up at how many milliseconds it is to blink, and it's something like 40 milliseconds to blink. So it's 1.6 milliseconds. So that's the kind of accuracy these guys were working at. But it sounds so futuristic, but also obviously very real because it's happened and and it's all been in the public domain. That We know that weapons are heading into, you know, that sort of uh, that space where, you know, drones are already getting control. Is there enough security around those kind of technologies because you know if you've got a drone flying around that could be hacked you know is that things of uh, i suppose is that potential reality or or is that just uh, i suppose fiction and we'll come to fiction shortly yeah so is it a reality it 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 all depends so that use case that you gave right there is very isolated very specific and that is like the dream for most engineers is when they have a very, very specific problem and they know every single element within that that they want to fix. And so they can replicate it for that one particular, I, I'm going to use the word trigger, but a trigger is basically when it reaches a particular threshold and it, 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 it meets that and it's able to do whatever it needs to do. The thing that I've discovered, and I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit when it comes to what maybe thinking about what these things do and then i'm going to tie it back and then probably make you realize and then maybe scare you again on the other end um so <laughs> do. right right now the problem that i see with a lot of ai companies that brag about so a lot of these capabilities is the bulk of them are i won't call them vaporware but they are um just not what they advertise and so a lot of them are automating processes and calling it machine learning or they're going on a site like GitHub and downloading existing machine learning libraries that they can just add onto their system and then selling it to people as if they did something unique. Um, a lot of them are just capitalizing on the open source community. But the example that you just gave, there are several different problems that were tied together into one solution. And that aggregation is actually very impressive because the impressive part about it is that AI for compensating for that 1.6 milliseconds, that's, that's, that's awesome. However, it's very similar to what 2G networks do to compensate for uh, speed of light latency on your in the synchronization channel so that you don't have a delay when you're talking to somebody. It's effectively the same thing at a much faster capability. right? So you, we've already had that. That's a 40-year-old technology. Wow. The theories are even older. It's just the applications now are becoming more uh, effective is what is the difference. Um, I, I was kind of surprised a lot of the algorithms that are used for things like autonomous drone flight were written in the 50s, especially when it comes wow. to like visual inertial odometry. And I, I, I was just looking it up the other day because of a project I was working on with some of my friends. And the uh, yeah, the, the theories are, are old. It's just the application has changed. 
And so the, each one of these abstraction layers that are inside of these, these problems, whether it be the computer vision, whether it be the natural language processing for voice, whether it be the simultaneous localization and mapping protocols for the drone to make decisions for itself and fly, each one of those is a separate abstraction layer right now that are all being developed independently. And all of them have their own problems. And when you combine them and you stack them together, you create contingencies that make the system brittle and they break more easily. And so in order, we as humans, we have basically the same kind of thing built into our DNA and in our, in our, in our, and basically the synapses of our brains that evolved over, over millions of years in evolution. The same thing is happening there. It's just happening faster, but it's not happening at the speed at which people think it's happening. It'll get there, but right now, a lot of the applications that I'm seeing, like six years ago, I saw some stuff. I was like, that's amazing. And then I saw a vendor walk up to me shortly before I got out of the military. So as a caveat, I'm not in the military anymore, and I don't represent the military. They're just my opinions. Um, they uh, they showed me stuff that I, I saw six years ago as if it was new. And uh, they thought that I, I, could, I would look under the hood, and it would be fine, and I wouldn't know the difference. And then I just it got blown out of the water because it was just they were useless, right? And that's I think that's the big surprising thing to people is they're like, so we're there. This is happening. Like, no. And then so in the news, for example, if you see something that's output, like you see a um, some advanced technology that's employed and you're like, that's incredible, you immediately assume it's proliferated and it's scaled. When, this is the valley of death again. You've just seen a prototype most likely. And you've seen a baseline application of it. You haven't seen it got to the reliability of production, which a lot of them never quite get there. And it, then from production, you, it's never gotten to the point where it's scaled and gone to sales. And I've seen lots of cool demonstrations where something happened, but they could never reproduce it reliably enough to where it had ever got in the hands of an end user. Fascinating. No, no, that, that, and uh, uh, to be fair, I do see technologies where people come along and say, um, you know, even in the very simplest form of, um, you know, looking at people working from home, lots of people come along with new technology and said, yeah, we can do this. And it's like, actually, no, people were doing that five, 10 years ago. Um, you know, we, we've had uh, you know, partners of ours that uh, uh, were working from home 15 years ago. It's not a new concept. It, it, it's, uh, and the technologies that have been out there for a long time and people have tried to wrap those up, modernize them a little bit, put a new skin on the front. And yeah, you're quite right that it's just, uh, yeah, it is an old technology, which is, uh, which is quite fascinating. But I suppose from, um, apart from security, what are the main considerations that a tech vendor should, be, should take before putting a technology in front of a military organization? So when you're saying security, are you talking about their internal security or are you talking about national military security? Well, I, I suppose, you know, there's, you know, from, from my perspective, you know, the first steps are, you know, the vendor ideally needs some security cleared employees, which is always a big help to go and have those conversations. You know, there's always, particularly if it's software or, or an app or, 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 um, or, or even a piece of hardware, you know, is it secure? Is it going to pose a risk to the business? And when you get over those topics mm -hmm. um, and you've got that all bolted down, what considerations would you would you lead with um, in, in terms of um, an approach? Um, I, I would say, so that's what I, was, I thought you were, you were going toward. You don't actually have to have your entire I-Free infrastructure constantly pen tested and prepared and ready 100% before you ever show it to the military. I think it's really a matter of 
um, what avenue you're going to use to establish a relationship with the government. I think the best example in this particular setting is what an organization did called uh, called AFWorks has done. And I don't know if you've heard of them, but it, it, the AFWorks is an extension of the U.S. Air Force that uses small business innovation research grants to help small businesses innovate for the purpose of defense. And they have this open, it, about a few years back, uh, there was this big push for everybody to do these quick innovation turn two solutions. And AFWorks decided, you know what we're going to revolutionize? We're going to revolutionize contracting. We're going to make it easier to work with the government and easier to use this pot of money that we have that is designated specifically for the innovation of commercial technologies for defense use. They're grants. You just, if they win the grant, they get the money and that's it. Um, and, and so what AFWorks did is previously Sibbers sometimes would take like a year to get in place. They made it so they could get done in uh, the fastest one they did was in three minutes. And so from the time that they were selected as the company after their pitch and all that stuff, and they said, we're going to use you, they got into a phase one, which goes up to a cap of 250,000. Um, and then they have to build out a white paper or, or a prototype concept in that after a survey or whatever it is. And then the next phase, if they can win the next one, they get phase two is up to around 2 million after two phases, right? And then phase three actually has a cap, contracting cap of $250 million. And so it's a, it's a venue that you can use that's openly available, constantly there for somebody to try and apply to get sponsorship with the government, to try and get their application started. And it became, it's so prolific that when I met a company and they were like, hey, we want to we work with you, I would say, well, do you have an AFWRC Sibber yet? That was like almost my first question. Well, not because of the fact, and because it, it became a gatekeeping process that I could support, even though I was in a different branch of the military, I could support it from um, the Navy to support something in the Air Force, and it forced joint service interaction. Um, and so that those kind of venues are great opportunities for small companies to come out, and they don't. I've seen companies as small as like three people win these contracts to start building it, and they can use it then as um, CRAD, uh, so uh, commercial R and D research and development dollars as opposed to internal research and development dollars, uh, like venture capital is normally how people do that, or seed funding. But you can use government money to get it going because the government wants this technology to move forward. Now, how it yeah. transitions in the long run is different. Interesting. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm sure there's probably uh, similar incentives in, in other parts of the world as well because uh, it, it is, uh, they use the term the arms race, but sometimes it is becoming a technology race now um, and, and not just an arms race. So, uh, so yeah, no, that, that's fascinating. And I suppose, uh, you know, conscious of time and uh, what one of the key things that um, I, I was quite fascinated about was that, um, you know, you, you spent over 20 years in the military and you, you've now come out of the military and you've written a fictional book called The Hawk Enigma. Can you give me a little bit of a background on why you decided to go down that route? Uh, so with the writing, I, I didn't intend to write. It just sort of ha it happened because I had a bit I had I got diagnosed with a melanoma and and uh, so I had a bit of cancer and I had to get rid of it. And, and that kind of led to a bit of an existential in, uh, not crisis, but had me thinking about what would my legacy be? Right. So. And from there, I, I just had this really strong impression I needed to write, but I didn't know what. And about a year later, I was at Caltech for a symposium on artificial intelligence. And uh, a professor by the name of Viviana Gradonaru went up and started talking about optogenetics and how she was using machine learning algorithms to identify specific proteins to um, do this crazy stuff that I'd never even heard of. And the plot just popped in my head, like right there. And 
fiction allows me to discuss things that I wouldn't have been able to discuss otherwise because I can couch it within something that is completely fictional. And so I can put nuggets of goodness inside of uh, a protected shell, I guess, <laughs> so that other people can read it. And uh, that's that's really where the book came from. Sounds great. And I, I suppose for anyone out there that, that, that that's probably uh, looking for a, a beach read um, and is in the tech industry and has also got a, a wild imagination, then it's probably going to be a really good read. Um, so, yeah, I, I'll be putting it on my reading list for the um, for, for, for my summer holidays. Sweet. Yeah, it's a good it's a good time. Yeah. Great. No, no, thanks for that. And uh, I suppose just to kind of wrap up, we always do a couple of quick fire questions. And I suppose um, just to sort of uh, to wrap us up. And, and I suppose my first one is a smart home or simple life? Just me, simple life with my family, smart home. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And lastly, what's your favorite tech gadget? Uh, those little micro mini whoop drones. You can fly them FPV around your house, and my kids like to play King Kong, and I have them stand on a chair, and I fly around them, and they try to knock it down. <laughs> brilliant. Oh, that's classic. I've not heard that one before. That's brilliant. Great, great input, and, and, and thanks so much for your time today. Re- really interesting. Great to chat to you. sure there's loads of different technologies and loads of different questions that I've got, and I'm sure we'll get quite a lot of feedback on this show. So, so thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Really, you know, wish you the best of luck with the uh, with the book, and uh, hope all that goes well. I will, um, I will read it, and I will find some feedback over as well, just to say uh, how I get on with it. And hopefully, um, at another point, we, we might catch up again. Awesome, great to be here. Thank you for the time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with Jim Hancock. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update. And check out other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.